0: Home is a member of the Boing Boing Podcast Network. To learn more about the other shows in the lineup, visit boingboingpodcasts.com. And to find out more about this show, including full show notes for every episode, visit homestories.la. Audio assistance for this episode was provided by Samir Sengupta.
1: The best historians in L.A. are... Storytellers, You know, they're people, they're gangsters in East L.A., they're ex-cons, they're um, guys who worked in their garage their whole life, they're guys who have worked at one business for 40 years, um, people who have lived on one street for 40 years.
0: This is Home, stories from L.A. I'm Bill Barol. start with a photograph. Say it's a photograph of the writer William Faulkner. Faulkner is shirtless, wearing sunglasses, sitting on a balcony in bright afternoon sunlight. There's a typewriter resting on a chair at his knees. But Faulkner isn't writing. He's reading and smoking a pipe. The photo was taken during Faulkner's time as a screenwriter. And you know this because every time you've seen it, and you've seen it a fair amount, it's a well-known image, it's captioned the same way. Faulkner in Hollywood. Maybe Faulkner in Los Angeles. And because you know, because everybody knows, that Faulkner's time in the movies was unhappy, that anodyne caption, Faulkner in Los Angeles, stands in for the whole tragic arc of the story and for the story of every serious writer who came to Hollywood for a paycheck and found only misery. This experience of the photo and the caption, it's what happened, more or less, to another writer, a transplant from New England, newly set down in Los Angeles. His name is Sam Sweet. He didn't like it much.
1: To me, that was completely emblematic of how people treat Los Angeles, almost as if it's not a real place, that just identifying a photo as Los Angeles indicates... um, What it indicates is sufficient, but to me... That that's almost just using the city as this amorphous symbol for a bad period in Faulkner's life, whereas I was really interested of, this guy spent time here. You know, he slept in a bed in a building for a certain reason and got up at, in the morning and went certain places, and he engaged with the city, and that's the part of this story that interests me. But you can't access that unless you tell me what that building is.
0: The use of L.A., the undefined whole of it as a big blobby shorthand for, well, who knows what. All the things people think they know about the place, let's say. It struck Sam as lazy storytelling. He thought it lacked specificity. Sam liked specificity.
1: And so I got the addresses of all the places he lived in L.A. and uh, kind of by process of elimination narrowed it down to that... um, Hotel on Highland, right in Hollywood, um, sort of north of uh, the Chinese theater, right, right south of the Hollywood Bowl. And, um, and then once you can locate that building, the history of that building provides its own context, which can then illuminate Faulkner in a new way. So all of a sudden you can sort of start to develop a picture of the city that wasn't there before.
0: This was the genesis of an extraordinary series of small press books called All Night Menu. The stories Sam tells in it, the pictures of the city he's most interested in, they hang in the air like ghost ships. Which is to say, once you've seen them, you can't unsee them. But you can't see them at all unless you take the trouble to look. And look closely. Los Angeles is too big to apprehend or even come close without a sharp, sympathetic eye for the small stuff. Sam grew up in coastal Maine, as far from Los Angeles as it's possible to be and still be in America. The two most alien places he remembers were the Deep South and Los Angeles. So naturally, after college, he moved to Mississippi. He fell for L.A. when visiting a friend who lived in Eagle Rock.
1: He would uh, go fill his jugs of water down at the Vaughns on Figueroa, in Colorado, and um, I was just completely satiated by the most mundane things we did in Los Angeles, and um, there was a quality to the atmosphere here that made completely anonymous streets satisfying for me, and. Uh, if you can find that in a place that you can have an enriching life there, (laughs) so.
0: I asked him what he meant by satisfying, and unsurprisingly, he reached for some very specific sense memories. The character of the light on the side of a building, the way two houses frame a distant slice of mountains. It's the kind of animating detail that you so often find in great storytelling, but which is frequently absent from the writing of history. In 2013, four years after he first went digging around that Hollywood hotel in search of Faulkner, he had an idea for a book series about the secret history of Los Angeles. Five volumes, 40 stories. The books would be printed on craft paper in limited editions, 400 for volume one, 500 for the subsequent ones, and sold by Sam directly and in a couple of good L.A. bookshops. He wasn't and isn't immune to the appeal of electronic media, but... The notion of producing beautiful little books, real objects you can hold in your hand, appealed to him.
1: I've always had a thing for craft paper, which is sort of like, um, similar to the paper that grocery bags are made out of. Um, And, you know, in in a project where I was trying to make uh, mythical histories more tangible, it, it seemed to fit that the book itself should have this very tangible, unusual, anti-ephemeral quality to it.
0: Each story in the books, Sam decided, would be grounded to an address. The Faulkner story, for example, which appears in Volume 1, is 1922 Highland, equidistant Sam notes from the Hollywood Bowl and Musso and Frank's, Faulkner's favorite bar. And this was key— although there are a lot of good online resources for primary research. In fact, we're living in a sort of golden age for people who want to immerse themselves in the kind of raw data that daily newspapers provided in the 20th century. Good clay, Sam calls it. He'd go where the stories were, where the addresses were, even if the buildings themselves were long gone or had been remodeled into unrecognizability. And he'd talk to the people who were the keepers of their stories.
1: L.A.'s best historians aren't Academics or writers, which is one of the reasons that its history has been so hard to uh, to apprehend. But you, there are those people are accessible. But like everything in L.A., you have to. They're not going to present themselves to you. You have to initiate it. But to me, that's the reward of everything in L.A. Is that the essential is always hidden, but available if you initiate it.
0: Each volume would contain, in its eight stories, a balance of neighborhoods and eras. Sam's hope was that each of the five volumes would leave a reader with a feeling he'd been given access to a little universe, interconnected and, if not complete, at least comprehensible as parts of a discrete big picture.
1: As much as the, the ideas for stories are endless, by the end of five, it was important for me that it, it have the sense of completeness that a a set of short stories would have, that people wouldn't be left feeling like anything was out of place and that they would have a, uh, a complete feeling of wholeness at the end. And I thought five was the, um, was the amount I, I knew I could achieve that feeling in.
0: That interconnectedness between stories isn't always apparent. It doesn't lie on the surface of the books any more than it does on the vast, sprawling surface of L.A. itself. But it's there. In the first volume, Sam ranges from that Hollywood hotel to the Olympic auditorium for the story of boxer George Scrapiron Johnson to the street in Griffith Park, where the forgotten folk duo Penny and Jean shot the cover of their debut LP to the Velsi Jacob Surf Shop on Bologna Creek in what was then Venice and is now Marina del Rey, and from there to the east side street that spawned one of L.A.'s oldest gangs. The stories are meticulously reported and researched, told plainly, without reaching for effects. And when you get to the end, you do have a feeling that you've been given access to a place that is, for all its messiness, somehow one thing.
1: One of the effects that I want to achieve is this sense of pinging sounds resonating off all different corners of LA, all different eras all contributing to this idea that the city isn't this um, chaotic uh, dissonant unknowable um, mass uh, that it's actually um, very complex contradictory but Whole, and that there's something that every corner of it shares that it creates a, a unified whole that is completely contradictory. But to me, you know, contradiction's part of LA's essence. It doesn't make it less whole. It contributes to the sense of its character.
0: Sam's magnum opus, at least so far, may be a story in Volume Three, Five Hundred One North Mednick. Nominally, it's about the oldest handball court in the city. I
1: just wanted to write a story about handball uh, because, to me, there's it, it always felt like the national sport of L.A. and. Uh, there's not nearly as many handball courts as there used to be, and the fact that there was one that was built in uh, the 20s that was still standing was astonishing to me. And then you find out that um, it, it was owned by a Japanese couple who operated a convenience store next to it, and then you're thinking, wow, well, what is the deal with that? A Japanese? Why is a Japanese couple in the middle of this nucleus of Chicano culture in East L.A. And then you start asking around and slowly you realize that this handball court is not just a handball court, but it's a a hot spot in the same way that, you know, geologists (laughs) might find, like, a hot spot. It's like there's nothing extraordinary looking about the street it's on but as you start to peel back the layers of the history of that location you realize that the neighborhood that created that handball court is a one of the um it's a hot spot like a nerve center within the landscape of L.A. in the same way people commonly identify Hollywood and Highland maybe or, you know, the Sunset Strip or as sort of this is the the apotheosis of something. That is the reality of this handball court in East L.A., but there's no attention around it. It's completely sublimated, except for the fact that there's still actually an ancient brick handball court
0: there. The way Sam tells the story, it has the sweep of history to it. From the brick factory, where, according to local legend, workers smuggled out bricks two at a time to build the Maravilla handball court. To the Japanese-American couple Shigeru and Michie Nishiyama, who came down from Washington State and took over the adjacent grocery store just after World War II, and looked after generations of Chicano kids like they were their own. They made it into the new century, Tommy and Michi, only moving away when old age and infirmity forced them to leave the grocery store and the handball court behind. Michi died first in 2006. Here's Sam from the story, talking about Tommy in widowerhood and his son, Thomas.
1: After the funeral, he told Thomas to take him to Maravilla for a visit When his son came to pick him up, Tommy refused to get in the car. They argued, but all Thomas could say was, just don't go in the store. The following weekend, he returned to find spoiled milk in the coolers and produce rotting on the shelves. I saw your mother last night, Tommy said. His son threw everything away and shut off the electricity. Leave it, he said. He'd return each weekend in the months before Tommy passed, always to find the door open, the lights on, the shelves full.
0: The story of the Maravia court, Sam says, is the kind of expectation-confounding, generation-spanning narrative that can only be apprehended in something approaching its real fullness by talking to the people who keep the history. Because
1: that's a history that is so special and so deep that once you hear it, once I heard it, I'm left feeling that this is the center of Los Angeles. Like this is, this is, if it has a center, this is it. What we have come to think of as West Coast culture grows out of this center, but they haven't shared, because they haven't shared that history is so insular because they haven't promoted commodified or shared that history with outsiders in any way, it's completely sublimated. But that makes it more powerful.
0: The pull of this kind of hidden narrative, Sam feels it every place he goes in the city. Sometimes he feels it more strongly in places where the contours have been completely obliterated than in ones where they look more or less the same.
1: When you know the history, it's, it's almost like how you can feel the presence of a ghost more powerfully than the presence of a person, in a weird way, they're less real, but it, it like, its claws go deeper into your psyche or something. So I I have very mixed feelings about preservation and keeping things standing for the f- sake of keeping things standing. I don't have any clear answers on what the right thing to do is. All I can say is. Uh, it pains me to see uh, buildings I care about taken down, and I also sometimes experience the past more intensely where it doesn't exist than in a preserved building. It's a very, very strange phenomenon that's, that's hard to explain.
0: It feels a little like magic, but it isn't. What he's talking about is the power of good Storytelling.
1: The tools of a historian will not result in a powerful story, but the tools of a good storyteller can result in powerful history. So uh, I always try to orient myself towards storytelling. Is history anything more than stories well told?
0: Volume four of All Night Menu is coming out late this year or early next and sometime after that, the fifth and final installment. And that'll be that. Although Sam plans to collect all five volumes in an omnibus edition sometime in the future. I asked him if he thinks at the end of the line, after 40 stories and half a decade spent mapping the subliminal threads that bind Los Angeles into one whole, he'll have come any closer to understanding what it is that makes the place unique.
1: I, I always resist verbalizing it because I do feel so much that the the stories are the best answer to that question, I do think that there's a strange sense of liberty and opportunity within Los Angeles that has persisted from its origins to the present. There is the sense that you can do or be anything out here, as cliche as it sounds, I think is the subliminal fire that has fueled a lot of the distinct culture that has come out of here. And I'm not sure that it it exists. I am sure that that doesn't exist in the same way in any other part of the country. To me, that's why I would really like to end the series somewhere with a an aerospace story. Because to me, that is so embodied in aerospace, which is just so fundamentally about doing the impossible. We are going to put heavy objects and make them fly into the air. And it's such a beautiful image, and it's so improbable and impossible and wrong. And yet, in 1911, In the first big aviation show in LA, you have pictures of aircraft of all forms and shapes and types filling the sky in Los Angeles, and then in 2017, every time you go to LAX, you pass the Tesla factory where there's some, you know, insane geniuses in there who are also trying in some fashion to put strange things up into the sky, and, uh... This spirit that has motivated people to put objects into the sky for a hundred years running is very real out here. it's a it's a very a real, powerful thing that has um, ex- that existed here a hundred years ago and is, it still exists now. So I think in some way, uh, there's something in there that answers the question.
0: That seems about right. He'll have spent 39 chapters minutely examining stories at ground level. And then, at last, he'll lift his eyes to the stars.